Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm your host as always, Stan McCune, realtor right here in the Greenville area, and you can find all of my contact information in the show notes if you need to reach out to me for any of your real estate needs. And just a reminder as always, please, if you like this show, subscribe to it. Make sure you don't miss future episodes. Please also leave a five-star rating, if you will. Um, a few of you have left less than five-star ratings. Um, you know what? I'm kind of okay with that, although I would much prefer a five-star rating, but I would prefer a rating over no rating. So please leave a rating if you can. And if you can just take a moment, just leave a short little review. That will help get the show out to as many people as possible. Today, we're going to be having a little bit of fun, but I think that this will um, offer some value as well. I want to discuss trick questions for interviewing investor realtors. I might modify uh, that title when I actually come up with the title for, uh, for this episode. But trick questions for interviewing investor-friendly realtors. And the reason why I want to discuss this is because, I, as a lot of people know, I have kind of built my business over the years, not exclusively, but in a lot of ways in the investment side of residential real estate. I don't do much in the commercial space. It's always in the residential end of things. But that was how I kind of broke in. I broke in as an investor-friendly, uh, quote-unquote. Uh, I know that that means different things to different people, but an investor-friendly realtor. And from there, I built my business. And I don't just help uh, investor clients. I also help just standard retail clients looking to to move. Um, but a core part of my business has always been the investor side of things. And that also helps with my non-investor clients as well, because I can think in terms of value. I can think in terms of where the market is going and, and I have resources where, whether it be contractors or, uh, specialty lenders or whatever the case may be that can help my clients in a transaction, even if it's not a an investment type of, of uh, purchase or sale. Um, but when I am in the marketplace and I'm communicating with other realtors or just monitoring my email, uh, I, I'm with C. Dan Joyner Realtors and we have uh, you know a company email where people can send out questions. And of course, um, I have no problem with newer realtors that go on there and will will blast out obvious questions. That happens all the time. It's going to happen in any firm. Uh, but it's remarkable to me how many times I'll see questions that it's just like, wow, they don't know anything about investment real estate. And it's not even questions about um, investment types of properties. It's just sometimes very basic things. Um, and ironically enough, uh, as I was getting ready to... Uh, basically set up to record this episode, I was looking at things that had come on the market or that had gone under contract the last few days. And I noticed this wasn't from my office. This was this was a different uh, realtor from a different real estate brokerage um, that had listed a duplex for sale. And they had listed it as a single family residence. They hadn't even listed it as a multifamily property. There is a separate section in Greenville MLS for duplexes, triplexes, and quadruplexes but instead, they chose to list this duplex as a single-family residence. And guess what? They listed it for below market value. And of course, it went under contract right away. Someone uh, who was, you know, 
was was really interested in a duplex. This was in the in the Simpsonville area. Somebody that was really interested in in uh, in a duplex in the Simpsonville area got, relatively speaking, a good deal. It wouldn't have been the kind of deal that I would have gone for, um, or that any of my current clients would have gone for. But it was a uh, strong deal for something coming on MLS. Probably the the best multifamily type of of opportunity I've seen on MLS in probably the past six months. And it probably would have sold for more than what it sold for. I mean, I I don't know yet. They're they're still under contract. So I don't know what the final number is going to end up being. Uh, But most likely it's less than what it should have been because it was listed incorrectly. The realtor did not even know to list it as a duplex. That's absolutely astonishing to me. Uh, But this is the type of stuff that happens. Um, and the reason why I'm going about this with, with the this podcast with asking trick questions. First off, let me just say this. I frequently am interviewed to be to represent people as their realtor when they're interviewing other people. And I enjoy that. I always encourage people to interview uh, multiple realtors. And I'm always confident that I will that I will give a good impression in those moments. But when you're interviewing someone to represent you as an investor, it's not as easy as you might think to to craft the appropriate questions. And oftentimes, the best way to go about it is to ask a question where you're not really asking what they think you're asking. Because what I've learned over the years is that the realtors that are, are actually experienced and savvy in investment real estate... Actually, let me back up for a second. I know a lot of realtors that claim to understand investment real estate. And then when I get involved with them in a transaction, it's like, okay, they, they don't they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and it's frustrating uh, because I want them to know what they're doing. I, I don't I, there is value that a good buyer's agent or a good listing agent can provide. And I always want to be across the table from another realtor that is good at what they do. That just makes, Everything uh, go more smoothly in a negotiation, in a transaction, etc. And so where I'm going with this is that it can be tricky sometimes to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to realtors claiming that they have a proficiency in investment real estate. They can probably rattle off, oh yeah, I've helped these people buy these investment properties or you know, I have a rental property for myself. Um, or whatever the case may be. But there is a certain level of savviness, a certain level of experience that you can't just see superficially when you're just looking at raw numbers. There's a reason why I get questions all the time from other realtors about uh, different things related to investment real estate. And I try to help them as much as possible because I prefer I prefer everyone to be better at this. The more Realtors are better at this. Like I said, the the more it'll help everyone. But I feel like sometimes the the best way to go about this, if you're in a situation where you're looking to interview realtors to potentially help you on the investment side of things, um, or if you just want to, I think that this has value to just kind of shaping the way you think about uh, investment real estate as a whole and just how to just approach the entire transaction. I think that that thinking about it 
through this lens that I'm, I'm about to uh, attempt to do with this episode, I think will be helpful. So here are some trick questions that I came up with. I came up with, I think, eight trick questions for interviewing uh, investor-friendly realtors. The first question is, what CPA would you recommend to facilitate a 1031 exchange? What CPA would you recommend? All right. The reason why I feel like this is a good good question and a good trick question is because really, if if you ask this question, really the first thing that you should be starting with is actually, okay, do you understand a 1031 exchange requires more than just a CPA? That requires a 1031 intermediary. Are you already under contract? Like if you're already under contract to sell a property or to buy a property and you're hoping to do a 1031 out of that, it might we might already be too late in the process. There's a lot of things that need to be considered. So somebody, if I had a client that came to me and was like, hey, do you have a good CPA to help facilitate a 1031 exchange? My first response wouldn't be, uh, yeah, I, I think I can find you a good CPA. No, my first response would be, okay, hold on for a second. Let's figure out exactly what you need. Um, and let's start with what are you attempting to do here? And what is your time frame? Because uh, there's a lot more than just having a CPA involved that facilitates a uh, 1031 exchange. Um, what kind of, here's a question number two. What kind of cap rate should I expect if I invest in single family homes or duplexes? A uh, cap rate... Um, is a way of kind of assessing investment properties, but it's really primarily used in in commercial or like larger multifamily types of uh, context. Um, but sometimes I will get this question, what kind of cap rate should I expect? Or what kind of a cap rate um, is there going to be for the this type of property or, or these types of properties and again, my specialty, I don't handle large multifamily or commercial properties typically. Typically, I'm ha- handling single-family homes, duplexes, triplexes, quadruplexes. Um, and what, at the end of the day, um, this is a good question to ask a realtor anyway. What kind of cap rate should I expect? Because first off, a lot of residential realtors won't even know what cap rates are because that's not something that is talked about in our world very much. But it is useful to understand um, and I, I think it is good to assess, okay, how much experience, how much knowledge does someone have about this world, this world of investment real estate um, from that standpoint? Do they even know the lingo? Um, and of those that do know, I, I would say, I would argue that many of them, if they get this question, and again, for single family homes, duplexes, properties like that, they should be steering away their clients from thinking about small rental portfolios from a cap rate standpoint and look at other rules. Like we've talked about in the past, we've talked about the 1% rule, where basically you're looking for properties, for rental properties that bring in per month 1% of your your buy-in price, your purchase price, potentially your purchase price, plus uh, whatever improvements you made. That is kind of a better way to compare these smaller portfolios, whereas the cap rate way of looking at it, to me, is a better way of looking at comparing commercial properties and larger multifamily like apartment complexes and whatnot against each other. 
because when you're when you're purchasing, when you have a much larger type of property um, or a larger commercial property, it's just it, it's very different numbers than when you're dealing with these smaller house portfolios, um, and oftentimes the cap rates for if you're comparing the cap rates on a commercial property to and you look at cap rates for a quadruplex, I mean the quadruplex is going to look incredibly appealing as compared to a you know strip mall for instance. But someone that's buying a strip mall is trying to do something different than someone that's buying a quadruplex at the end of the day. And so I think that that is a very important detail. So if someone came to me and they asked me for a duplex, what is the cap rate for this duplex? The first thing I'm going to do is say, okay, we, I can tell you what the cap rate is, but I would also tell you cap rate is not the way I would assess this property. Here's the way I would assess it, and here's why. And so I think that that's a, a good trick question to kind of see how do, do they know the lingo, and then do they understand that there are other ways for assessing these types of properties that might be more accurate? Now, I still have clients that are just like, you know what, they, they, they don't care. They still want to see the cap rate. And it's like, okay, well, I can do that. It's pretty simple for me to calculate a cap rate on a property but um, or, or an estimated cap rate for a property. But um, I, I like to at least make sure that they know that that might not be the best way to assess it. Um, trick question number three. And and I like this one because I see this type of I, I see uh, in a variety of ways that realtors don't understand a, a key part of this one, um, which I'll explain here in a second. All right, trick question number three: How would you help me if I were moving to this area and needed a place to rent for six months, and then plan to buy a house after that? Um. And, and there's more to this question, but I'm going to pause for a second and interject. This happens to us a lot as realtors. We have a lot of times that that clients will come to us and they're looking to move here from, from out of state or whatever the case may be, and they need a place to rent for a while before they end up uh, going and buying, okay? And so they will come to us with this request. Um, can, can you help me find a rental? Uh, and so... I see a lot of times realtors sending out emails asking for, hey, does anyone have a rental property coming up that fits these various criteria? All right. So with that in mind, how would you help me if I were moving to this area, needed a place to rent for six months, and then plan to buy a house after that? The minimum requirements for a place to rent are, uh, I need 2,000 square feet, I need four bedrooms, at least two bathrooms, and I need it to allow a small dog. All right. Now, realtors who haven't dealt with rentals very much, or, or sorry, I should I, let me start with realtors who have dealt with rentals quite a bit will immediately notice the elephant in the room. And, and maybe you noticed as you were listening. What was the elephant in the room? The request, the minimum requirements for the place to rent left off one of the most important details, the price, what they can actually afford to rent, what they're hoping to afford to rent. Um, it also isn't clear if they need a furnished rental or if they need an unfurnished rental. Um, it's not clear. There, there's details uh, that I'm also thinking about. Okay, uh, does, the, does the dog shed? Is it hypoallergenic? Um, different things like this. And so I see emails all the time being sent out 
with this type of criteria. I have a client moving to this area and they need to rent. Oh, and also a very obvious thing as well. This is oftentimes less important, but but the very obvious elephant in the room as well is that there's no g generic location even. Is this Greenville County? Is it Spartanburg County? Could they live out in Pickens? Um, and so I see this all the time. Realtors sending out emails or putting on Facebook groups. Um, hey, I've got a client that's moving to this area and they need uh, 2,000 square feet, four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a place for a small dog. Do you know of anything? Do I know of anything? Where? How much? Does They've got a small dog. Does it need a fenced-in yard? It's remarkable to me how many, uh, how frequently realtors will uh, in, will have these types of, of things where they're trying to help out their clients and they've not even addressed the most basic elements of the ask. Um, and I think for a lot of them is because they're not thinking, they're not used to thinking about rentals. They're, they're just, they're in the mode where in, uh, in MLS, we have certain criteria and you're not, one of those criteria typically isn't the monthly payment. And that's the one that surprised me the most is how often people will, will send out a blast like this, that they're looking for a rental property. They're looking for a place for a client to rent for, for a little bit of time and they won't say how much per month. I mean, that is such a, a fundamental part of all of this. Um, but when we're searching for our clients for something to buy, we're not looking at the monthly numbers. That's a whole separate thing um, that sometimes we'll talk about. Um, oftentimes it will come up in conversation, but it's not something we can't sort properties by that. Um, not not on the, the uh, resale market. For rentals, obviously, we can. Uh, but because realtors aren't used to thinking about rentals, oftentimes they will completely miss it. So I think that that's kind of a, an interesting way of getting into a realtor's mind of, of whether they can think of it, can, can whether they are actually in that world and are, uh, are thinking about rentals or whether they are only thinking about purchases and, uh, and sales. Um, question number four, what are some of the best areas to buy a duplex in? What are some of the best areas to buy a duplex in? The reason why this is a, a trick question is because there's like no duplexes available, right? I, I mean, I just mentioned, this is this is why it was so egregious that this one that I mentioned before was listed as single family because there are almost none available, particularly in Greenville County. So if I have someone that comes to me and says, where are you know, what's the best place to buy a duplex or a triplex or a quadruplex? It's like, uh, really, there aren't any available. So uh, what areas are you targeting? Give me the, the broadest possible uh, geographic radius that you can, or, or tell me kind of what type of uh, area you're looking for, or what kind of criteria, loose criteria you're looking for, and then maybe we can start to reverse engineer whether there might be uh, duplexes that come available in that area. That is really the bigger challenge. Um, and so if you ask that to, to someone and they say, oh, well, I, I mean, I would say a duplex in, in Riverside School District. Well, sure, yeah, that would be great. Riverside School District, awesome. I'd, everyone would love to have a duplex in Riverside School District. Tell me, when's the last time one of those sold? 
You know, when, when was the last time you even saw a duplex in Riverside School District? I don't even know if those exist. Um, and so that's kind of a way to see, okay, does this person actually know what's actually in the market? Because again, most realtors are not monitoring that multifamily market. And so they might not even be aware uh, at just how low the inventory is for those types of properties. Uh, question number five, if I buy a property with a tenant in it that is paying below market rent, what can I do to make them pay more? Ooh, what can I do to make them pay more? I actually do get this question sometimes. And there's a very simple question that needs to be responded to every single time. Or this, A lot of these there's like a few different ways that you could answer this. This one has a very simple response that always needs to be the next question. And that is, what does the lease agreement say? What does the lease agreement say? Because that is the starting point. If there is a current lease agreement in place, that is where you start. Because that is a legally binding contract. And the landlord, landlady, and the tenants... They have to abide by whatever that says. And if the person, if the realtor you're talking to doesn't immediately go to that, then they obviously don't have experience dealing with tenants, dealing with lease agreements and the like. Um, and so that is a, a, a quick way to kind of assess how well they understand kind of uh, the landscape when it comes to uh, the rental market and the investment uh, property market. Question number six, where can I Airbnb and where can't I? Okay, another question that in various forms I will get from time to time. And here's the thing. Um, there is no correct answer to this question. And this one, it's, it's, it's not a trick question, but also kind of is, right? Because there are, aren't clearly defined rules yet, at least, on where you can or can't Airbnb. Even within areas like downtown Greenville, where there are restrictive rules, they still allow it with certain provisions. Now, those provisions are extremely strict. But to just say you can't Airbnb in downtown Greenville, that's not accurate. That is not an accurate statement. Um, it's just that functionally, Legally, you can. Functionally, it's extremely difficult. Um, and I'm not going to get into that um, in this episode. That's something you probably need to talk to an attorney about anyway. Um, or you can just go on uh, Greenville County's website where they outline some of that on there and you can take a look at it for yourself. Um, but in general, I believe that it's best to avoid city limits and HOAs. But some cities and some HOAs do still permit Airbnb uses. And so here's where, again, this is one where the response from the agent, if you're interviewing an agent about this, this is not one that has a clear, immediate, this is how they should respond, like the last question I asked. Um, or, or sorry, uh, yeah, like the last question I asked about the lease agreements. Um, but it's do they understand the context of all of this? Uh, because there's a lot of context that is important when it comes to Airbnb types of properties. And I'll mention that we, we've uh, talked about in the past that there might be some changes coming to the short-term rental regulations in South Carolina. I'm hoping for that. Um, but 
until that happens, city limits can can expand. They can change. And I think Greenville City is going to keep expanding their city limits. Um, as well, they can get more restrictive or less restrictive. HOAs can get more restrictive. Probably not less restrictive. Actually, probably neither of them are going to get less restrictive. Things only get, it seems, more restrictive over time. Um, so there there is, answering a question like this, there's not a an actual correct answer. It's more on a spectrum. It's more on a continuum is the way I see it. Uh, question number seven, trick question number seven. How much does a property manager cost? Now, those with a little experience, most people, I think most realtors will know that kind of the standard is around 10% of the gross rents. Um, and I would think a lot of them would just say, oh yeah, property manager is going to cost you 10% of the gross rents. Now, if they don't even know that, then that's that's a concern, okay? Um, but most will just say it'll cost you 10%. But those with a lot of experience will start by asking other questions. Okay, first off, are you talking about a property manager for a long-term rental, like a six or a 12-month lease? Or are you talking about a property manager for a short-term rental, such as an Airbnb type of property? That There's differences. There's big differences between the two of those. Um, and then uh, there will be nuance from from there, depending on what type of rental that you're uh, that you're trying to get. But even so, even for long term rentals, where ten percent is kind of the standard that we think about, there's a lot of other options too. I know of property managers that do eight uh, percent. I know of property managers that do flat fee or that that offer multiple tiers of flat fees. So there is a variety when it comes to that as well. So if you have someone that just says, oh yeah, it's going to be 10%, uh, not necessarily. There's that, that would indicate that they have not talked to very many property managers, that they've not dealt with very many rental property situations. Question number eight, uh, this will be the last question of the last trick question of the day. Um, and th- this one's, this one's a real tricky one. All right. I, I actually, I did these just in order of how they, there was no uh, particular order to this outside of this was the order that these came to me in. And I was just kind of sitting there just, I I, I didn't really know exactly what I was going to come up with as I was like brainstorming for this episode. And this one came to me last and I was like, ooh, I like this one. I'm glad to, glad to end the episode with this one. If I wanted to buy a condo or a townhome for use as a rental, can I get or could I get traditional 30-year financing, like a conventional loan or an FHA loan? This is a great question. Here's why. Because in Greenville MLS, condos and townhomes are grouped together. But when it comes to investment properties, these are two very different types of properties. Townhomes include the the basically... The, the real estate that they're a part of, like uh, maybe like a very s- slight sliver of a backyard. Uh, condos, they do not. But here's the thing, and, and there are some other differentiating uh, factors between the two of them. But from the standpoint of getting financing on these, getting financing on a condo is much, much more difficult 
than getting financing on a townhome. And if you guys have been listening to this podcast for a few years now, um, you know that I sold a bunch of condos um, primarily in 2021. I sold a few of them still in 2022 as well. Um, but I sold, I've sold a lot of condos over the past couple of years. And they, and basically, there is this term that is used in uh, the uh, mortgage underwriting world called what, I don't know exactly how to say this, but whether or not a condo is what they call warrantable. If it is unwarrantable, and there's a lot of rules, I'm not going to get into the weeds on all of this, um, but there's a lot of things that can cause a condo to be unwarrantable by uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac rules, which that's what we're, that's the, that's the rub here, is it, it's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There are a lot of things, several things that could make condos unwarrantable that do are not as big of an issue when it comes to to townhomes. Now you can run into uh, some of these issues with townhomes as well, but generally speaking, it is not going to be the same problem from what I've run into. Townhomes are are easy peasy. I, I've never had a single one fall through due to them being unwarrantable by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac rules. Condos, it happens all the time. And so um, oftentimes, when you're when people are buying condos, oftentimes they're not warrantable, or there are issues with um, the HOA not having enough funds in reserve, or things like this. And not every lender will be able to overcome those issues. A lot of times, condos require if they're gonna if it's gonna be an investment property. Oftentimes, they require an investment property uh, type of loan product, and so that is a very very important detail on this that you oftentimes cannot just get a conventional loan or an FHA loan on a condo because of of this issue. Um, And particularly if you're buying as an investment property, you're going to run into this issue even more because the, the underwriting standards and what loan products are available to you are even more restrictive than when you're buying uh, an, a home to owner occupy. So good trick question there because a lot of realtors will think of condos and townhomes as the same thing. Uh, but when push comes to shove, when you're trying to get financing on them, it, it usually is two very different experiences. Um, so I hope that you learned something from this. Maybe you'll get an opportunity to uh, to interview some realtors in the future and you can use some of these. Maybe not. Maybe you just enjoyed it, uh, learned a little bit of, of some of my thinking, some of what I see from other real estate professionals, some of the good, some of the bad. Um, but, uh, but I enjoyed this episode and I hope you guys did as well. Um, I'm hoping to have something very exciting for you guys next week. Not going not gonna to tell you yet just in case for some reason it doesn't work out. But I've got some things planned for next week for the show that I'm excited about. So I hope you guys will stick with it. Hit that subscribe button if you enjoy this and if you're looking forward to getting more content. Um, And as well, please leave a five-star rating and a short little review. My contact information is in the show notes. We'll talk again next week.